Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Okay. Um, but right now we're here for Richard... Uh, B. Jewell, a professor of critical studies at USC, yay, my alma mater, <laughs> School of Cinematic Arts. He is the author of The Golden Age of Hollywood and the RKO Story, RKO Story, among others. So please welcome Mr. Jewell. Thank you all for coming. It's great to see so many familiar faces here. Uh, what I'm going to do tonight is um, a kind of oral trailer for my book. Um, no bells and whistles, no technological gimmicks. We are in a bookstore, after all. Uh, I'm just going to try my best to, first of all, talk about what this book is, uh, and then to move on to the sizzle, to some of the more uh, exciting elements in the book that I hope will get you all excited about what's inside. So, the basics. First of all, RKO Radio Pictures was created in 1928. It uh, had a 29-year lifespan, went out of business in 1957. Um, during the time that it was making movies, uh, it actually produced over 700 feature films and even more shorts and newsreels and so on. Uh, it also released some of the most important independent producers' films, including classics from Walt Disney and Samuel Goldwyn and others. Um, this was a company that attempted to compete with the heavyweights of classical Hollywood, with MGM and Paramount and Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox. Like them, it was vertically integrated, and that means that it had production facilities out here, had two studios actually, one at Melrose and Gower in Hollywood and the other one in Culver City. It also had a ranch out in the San Fernando Valley where they made westerns and outdoor pictures and so forth. Um, it had a worldwide distribution network that was headquartered in New York. And it also owned more than 100 theaters in key cities around the country. So there was always a guaranteed outlet for the RKO product when it came out. Um, about, uh, well, I don't want to tell you, a long time ago, I wrote a book called The RKO Story, which was all about the movies that RKO produced. And it was somewhat 
frustrating to write because I had a lot more to say, particularly about the management of RKO, which was the thing that fascinated me the most. Um, this is the product of that. Um, but let me first of all do a little disclaimer here because this is only half of RKO's history. This book covers RKO from the prehistory, the couple of studios that later were turned into RKO, uh, all the way up through 1942. Um, I'm now working on the sequel <laughs> to this, uh, which will take it all the way through the end of, uh, end of the road. Um, as I said, the thing that always fascinated me most about RKO was management, the business history of the company, um, because it had such a unique history compared to its competitors. During the 14 or so years that I concentrate on in this book, RKO had four corporate presidents and 11 production heads. So there's a revolving door here uh, at the management level. It's changing. New people are coming in all the time with new ideas about how to make this company into the titanic enterprise that its founders promised it would, it would become. Uh, and most of them failed. But they all tried, and they tried hard, and they're all interesting characters um, with their own particular management style and their own uh, successes and failures. So this book has a lot of dr drama in it, and that's what really made me want to write it the most. Um, again, for those of you who are not that familiar with RKO during this first period, uh, it made some very famous films during the time. Um, I'll just mention the uh, famous effects film, King Kong, the granddaddy of all the boom boom films that we have to put up with now at this time of the year. Um, it also made in the 1930s nine movies starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers that are still considered among the greatest dance films ever produced. And uh, it contributed to film history Citizen Kane, which uh, many people still consider the greatest film of all time. There were a lot of interesting personalities at the studio. Catherine Hepburn was there, Irene Dunn was there, Cary Grant uh, was there, uh, Astaire and Rogers, of course, uh, Orson Welles um, later on, Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell and Howard Hughes and, and so on. That's what I'm struggling with right now is Howard Hughes, and believe me, it's a struggle. Um, so anyway, that's, this is really a business history. There's certainly a lot of attention paid in the book to certain films that were crucial uh, in RKO's history, but mostly it's the history of RKO told through the point of view of the men who attempted to run the company. Some of them well known, like David Selznick, and others basically forgotten in film history, like Charles Kerner, 
uh, who to me is a kind of hero, and I'm going to try to bring him back to people's attention in, in my work. Okay, so that's kind of the basics. Um, let's move on now to the uh, more juicy parts of RKO's history. I'm going to begin with the only Academy Award winning film that RKO ever produced. This was a sprawling western about the opening up of the Oklahoma Territory, which uh, won the the Oscar for Best Picture in 1931. It's called Cimarron. Later on, Arkea would sell the property and MGM would make a, a remake with Glenn Ford, but this is the one um, that won the Oscar and the only Western to win an Oscar for many, many years until Dances with Wolves came along. Um, anyway, today when we think about a film winning an Academy Award, one of the nice perks that goes along with that is money um, because it always means a great bounce in the box office. Minimum 20 or 30 million dollars more um, is expected from an Academy Award winning film. But things were different back in 1931. Uh, this film not only didn't make money, it actually lost more money than any film that RKO produced in the 1920s or the 1930s. It lost over a half million dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot to us today, but was a huge loss back then during the Depression period. Um, so Cimarron, despite its Oscar, was not a, a movie that helped the Western genre. In fact, uh, most studios stopped producing A-budget Westerns thanks to the failure of Cimarron uh, and um, as I said it would uh, be the only film that would ever score an Oscar for RKO. Later on in 1946 um, RKO distributed Samuel Goldwyn's The Best Years of Our Lives which also was a Best Picture Oscar winner but it was a Goldwyn production, not really an RKO film. Okay, the next person I want to talk about is Katherine Hepburn. Really a fascinating individual, a woman way ahead of her time, a woman who was strong-willed, determined to get her way, and who bedeviled the um, executives at RKO to no end. Uh, the, uh, the ironic thing about um, Catherine Hepburn is that she almost destroyed her own career. Um, when she got, well, let's back up for a second. Her third film, Morning Glory, she won the Best Actress Oscar. Her fourth film, Little Women, was a blockbuster success. Uh, and so as her power grew at the studio, she became more demanding about the roles that she would play. In 1934, she convinced the management that she had to play a part in a film that would ultimately be titled Spitfire. Now exactly why she wanted to play this character, I'll never know. Because the character was an illiterate hillbilly 
from the Ozark Mountains, uh, absolutely as far away from her training and background as you can imagine. The film was a disaster. She was absolutely terrible in it. And it started a, a kind of public um, questioning of her uh, as a real movie star. Um, people began to think that she was a bit of a kook, an eccentric, and they weren't so sure they wanted to follow her career after that. Well, in 1935, uh, RKO ma made her, actually she wanted to do it, um, play a part in a film called Alice Adams, which was quite good and helped bring her back to public favor. But one year later, she decided she had to make another film called Sylvia Scarlet. Now, Sylvia Scarlet, again, is a very strange classical Hollywood film in that throughout most of its running time, she masquerades as a boy. There's no particular reason why she does that. She just does it. And um, people were so upset, so turned off by this movie that uh, a kind of tide, a red tide began to rise against her to the point where two years later she was considered box office poison. She was labeled that by the trade papers in Hollywood and RKO finally gave up on her because she had had after Sylvia Scarlet, one failing film after another after another. Um, so they let her go. She was out of movies in 1938. A lot of people thought her career was over. She couldn't even get a job in Hollywood. I'm sure many of you know that 1939 is considered the greatest year in Hollywood history. It's the year of Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and so many great films. There's no Katherine Hepburn film in that year. Um, but again, she was very savvy and I guess she began to realize that the kinds of oddball roles that had gotten her into such trouble weren't really such a good idea. So she came, made a comeback in 1940 in the Philadelphia story, was put under contract by MGM, was teamed up with Spencer Tracy, and the rest is history. Three more Academy Awards and lots of great performances in films. Um, I guess what I should have said up front, what I'm trying to do here is my own kind of RKO, believe it or not, with apologies to Ripley because there are just so many interesting oddities, ironies, paradoxes in RKO history. The next one we'll talk about is Mr. Astaire. Um, Fred Astaire was put under contract by RKO in 1933. They really didn't know whether he had movie star potential or not. Um, but they decided, as they often did back then, to give him a try. Um, so they put him into a film called Flying Down to Rio, a really wacky film, which I recommend highly to you when you've had a few drinks or are otherwise not seeing quite straight. Um, anyway, uh, in that movie, 
He just happened to be teamed up with Ginger Rogers and they danced a couple of numbers together uh, and people sparked to the two of them. Um, and so the people who were running the studio at that time thought, hmm, we might try another one with them, maybe even build a series around them. Well, while that was happening, Astaire was in London doing a play and word began to filter back to him that the studio was thinking of doing a series of films with him and Ginger Rogers. He didn't like that idea at all. And I'm going to read a little letter that he wrote to his agent, a man named Leland Hayward, when he first heard the rumblings of this possible team. What's all this talk about me being teamed with Ginger Rogers? I will not have it, Leland. I did not go into pictures to be teamed with her or anyone else. And if that is the program in mind for me, I will not stand for it. I don't mind doing another picture with her, but as for this team idea, it's out, exclamation point. I've just managed to live down one partnership and I don't want to be bothered with another. I'd rather not make any more pictures for radio if I have to be teamed up with one of those movie queens." Unquote. Now, he continued from that point on to protest to the studio that he did not want to make movies with Ginger Rogers. His protests became more muted when they started giving him a percentage of the profits of the movies because these movies were not only critically embraced, they were incredibly successful and so important to the history of RKO because during this time period when they were making the Astaire Rogers pictures, RKO was bankrupt. It was in receivership. It was just uh, eking uh, along in, in the business. And so without the Astaire Rogers pictures and the money that they made, uh, it's conceivable that RKO would have never survived the 1930s. Anyway, finally he bugged the studio people so much that in 1937 they allowed him to make a film without Ginger. Uh, the film was called A Damsel in Distress. It was set in London. Music by the greatest, the Gershwins. Um, for comedy relief they had George Burns and Gracie Allen in it. The problem was that they matched the stare up in it with Joan Fontaine. Now Joan Fontaine's a perfectly good actress. She can't dance. She can't dance a lick. And so what are you going to do when you've got an Astaire movie, a musical, and it's a romance, and the leading man and the leading lady can't dance together? Well, you design a lot of dances for him to do solo. You allow him to dance with George and Gracie, who are really pretty good and could hold their own with Fred. But you've got to have one number, at least, in which he dances with Joan. So the director of this film, who was definitely on his way up at the time, a guy named George Stevens, designed an outdoor dance number um, for Fred and Joan so that 
he could strategically place a lot of tree trunks in between the camera and the dancers at crucial moments. So even with all of this camouflage going on, it's painful to watch Joan Fontaine try to dance with Fred Astaire. Anyway, uh, Fred went back to Ginger <laughs> for two more films. Uh, and then the films were costing so much money that they decided to break up the team. But again, they left behind nine films, which are still pretty special to watch today. Okay, the next um, little tidbit that I want to offer to you relates to the RKO players. One of the big disadvantages that RKO had compared to its competitors is that the studio really did not have very many top stars under contract. And it was always trying to develop stars, but most of the people that they did put under contract never quite made it you know, to the level of the stars that MGM had or Paramount or even Warners or Fox. Um, in 1937, the studio decided that the guy that they had making westerns there, a fellow named George O'Brien, was getting a little bit too old for the job and they needed a younger guy to come in and be their resident western hero. So they started looking around to find somebody that they could make six or seven inexpensive Western movies with um, a year. And the studio people thought of a particular fellow who had actually been working in Hollywood by that time for almost 10 years, who had made a lot of inexpensive Westerns for Monogram and Warner Brothers and Universal and so on, and the studio people thought there was potential here. However, they were, um, they had to deal with the New York office and particularly the distribution folks. The head of distribution at RKO then was a guy named Ned Depinay and his uh, chief lieutenant was a fellow named Jules Levy. And you know, you listen to the distribution people because they're the ones selling your films and they know what kind of feedback they're getting from theater owners about your pictures and your personalities. So anyway, um, here's what Mr. Depinay and Mr. Levy had to say about this potential hire um, for RKO. Um, uh oh, I lost my place here. Excuse me a minute. <laughs> I have to look this up. I put this in the wrong spot, I think. Here we go. Uh, this is a telegram, so you'll understand the lack of certain connectors here. Uh, Jules, myself, believe would be mistake distribute John Wayne Westerns. He is in the same category as dozen others with disadvantage having been sold cheaply, in our opinion, little prospect of gaining popularity. He is one of the poorest of so-called Western stars, seems miscast, and his pictures doing little at Universal. We believe would be better to go ahead with George Shelley, 
<laughs> who has not been identified with cheap Western pictures and with whom we would have chance building worthwhile singing Western star like Gene Autry. Of course, we all remember George Shelley, right? <laughs> so now you have some idea why RKO had such a tough time putting together stars. They really kind of didn't see it, didn't, just didn't see people the way they should have. All right, the last little uh, anecdote I'm going to mention, throw at you, is um, about Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball was put under contract by RKO in 1935. And in those days, contracts generally lasted seven years. And she was there for the full seven years. During that period, she made over 25 films. Most of them were B pictures. Some of them were A pictures, but when they were A pictures, she was always in supporting parts. Uh, she was in Stage Door, for example, in which she supported Katharine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers. Um, and uh, Lucille was very ambitious. She really wanted to be a top star. And so her experience at RKO simply became more and more frustrating over time as they, they could not find the right parts for her to emerge as a major figure. Um, in 1942, she left RKO and was picked up by MGM, which was a much stronger studio, no question about that. And so I'm sure that Lucille felt that this was the key, that MGM would uh, have a much better um, idea of how to build her into the star that she wished to be. Well, that didn't happen either. She stayed at MGM for the rest of the 1940s, and she was in some good pictures and some not so good pictures, um, but she never really became a movie star. Well, we all know what happened with Lucille Ball in the 1950s. She became the biggest television star of the early days of TV. And um, again, the great irony of that is that when RKO went out of business in 1957, guess who bought the old studios? She and her husband, Desi Arnaz, had a company called Desilu. And they didn't just produce I Love Lucy, they produced a lot of other television series as well. Um, and so when RKO folded its tent, she and Desi bought the old studios and used them for a while to make television programs. Um, today, uh, RKO has been um, basically taken into Paramount. Paramount ultimately bought RKO in the 60s and folded its studio, uh, folded the RKO studio into the, the Paramount, Paramount lot. In the days that I write about in this book, the two studios were right next to each other. They were separated by a chain link fence. So they just took down the fence and then they had a much bigger studio at Paramount. So, that's my little trailer for RKO Radio Pictures, A Titan is Born. Be glad to answer any questions that any of you might have. Yes? Uh, when you were doing your, uh, your research uh, in 
this book, uh, did, did you come across so any information on, say, oh, uh, uh, some directors who at the time were perhaps uh, uh, not quite as famous as they became later, uh, people like, uh, uh, oh, just out of the wild blue, uh, John Ford, you know, who did, of course, one of, uh, one of his greatest films at RKO, which was The Informer, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, which won him his, I think it was his first Academy Award as director. And, uh, and it, uh, the picture won, I think, was three or four Academy Awards, but not this picture. And I think it was Ford who made a comment after the Oscars saying, well, I guess they liked everything about it except the picture. But of course, time you know, proven what an extraordinary piece of work it was. But also, Ford did a lot of duds at RKO. He did a thing, another Irish uh, revolution team film of the tank, badly called The Plow and the Stars, right. actually adapted from a pretty good play by Sean O'Casey. Uh, but uh, but they made the mistake of adding all kinds of news, news real crap onto it. It just it just just wrecked it. And also miscasting Preston Foster in the lead, which which didn't help. Good actor, but he was wrong for the part. And I think, it's funny, he was perfect for, you know, Chippo's uh, friend in The Informer, but all wrong for The Plum and the Stars. So did you come across any, like, any information from, uh, about John Ford at, at that time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ford came in to RKO in 34, and um, they were delighted to get him. He was already considered a top director. And uh, I think he came in because he truly believed that he would have more freedom at RKO. And he did at first. As long as the budgets were kept under, uh, under control, um, he did. He did a pretty interesting film called Lost Patrol. Uh, and then he did The Informer. Uh, and then he did Mary of Scotland. And then, of course, Plow in the Stars. Well, one of the reasons that The Plow in the Stars is so bad is that Ford, as you undoubtedly know, had a particular way of working in that he would not shoot uh, coverage. He would shoot only what he wanted to go into the film. And so therefore, he never really had to worry about somebody mucking around with his work because the film could only go together one way. When the film was over, he went on to his yacht and had a nice time. And then when it was time to go back to work, it was back to work. And the film would be finished and he'd take a look at it and, you know, be happy. Well, with The Plow and the Stars, the studio people reshot some of his stuff. And that was the end for him at RKO. He was so angry about that that he, that, he you know, contract over. He was on a special kind of contract that gave him control from picture to picture. So he left and ultimately ended up at Fox, for most of his work anyway. Um, but that's why The Plow and the Stars is such a stinker. Um, I'd love to see the Ford version of The Plow and the Stars, but we'll never have an opportunity to do also, that. Uh, you just mentioned Mary of Scotland, because uh, that was another Kate Hepburn right. Really awful. I mean, uh, they, they tried to turn Mary Scotland into a goddamn saint. <laughs> <laughs> Ludicrous. Yeah, they played a little, you know, as, as they often did back then, they played around with history a little bit in that one. But I, I kind of liked the movie, but the audiences hated it. And of course, it all got blamed on Hepburn, not on Ford. Yeah. What else?
Yes. One of my Fred Astaire favorites, which was not of Ginger Rogers, was You Were Never Lovelier, I think it was, with Rita Hayward. Mm -hmm. Was that an RKO or is that? Columbia. Columbia. Yeah, Columbia. Right, right. After Fred left um, RKO in 39, he did what Cary Grant and others were doing at that time. He became a freelance so that he could pick and choose the roles and the people that he would work with. And so he worked all over the place. He worked for practically all the different companies after 1939. Yes? Was the, as a mini studio, were they more uh, like artist friendly or? Uh, compared to the other major studios, or, or, they, or they, the culture there was, it sounds like it was a mixed bag. Well, uh, see, that's, that's it. That's why you have to read this book. <laughs> uh, because, because RKO was changing management every couple of years, you had people come in and say, oh, what we have to do is just make money. We're going to make cheap exploitation movies and so on. Then a couple of years later, they're out. And somebody comes in and says, no, we're going to one-up United Artists here. We're going to do only artistic productions. We're going to really push the cinematic artistry you know, into the future. And then you get a Citizen Kane. So that's, you have to talk about specific periods to say they never did find a vision. The other studios basically had visions. But they had continuity of management too to uh, make sure that those visions carried forward. RKO never had that. There was just too much turnover. Yeah, Mike? Do they have any sense of what they had with Citizen King at the time? Uh, yeah, but it got really messy because of Mr. Hearst. And I'm sure some of you, most of you know that story. Hearst tried to destroy the film and it almost was destroyed. There were people on the RKO board of directors who voted to burn the negative. Um, and it's really fortunate that the man who was the president of the company at that time, George Schaefer, fought like crazy to preserve that film and won uh, the battle. But absolutely, they knew that they had uh, a an incredible film. And one of the things that Schaefer did was to show it to as many Hollywood people as possible to make them aware of this amazing breakthrough in cinematic uh, expression. Um, and so that was one of the ways actually that he was able to kind of fight the battle to get people on his side to say you can't destroy this masterpiece. But it was a mess and the film never made money. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is that Hearst um, wouldn't allow advertising, not just for Citizen Kane, but for any RKO film for about two years in all of the papers that he controlled around the country. But also, I think the film was really too far ahead of its time for audiences. A lot of people, I, in the trade papers, they used to run something where um, exhibitors would write in there's a little column called, What the Movie Did for Me. And mostly they would ray, oh, the Shirley Temple movie, it made so much money. People in my hometown love this movie so much. But read the things about Citizen Kane. My people didn't understand it. They couldn't follow it, you know. We 
it's amazing to us. But when you think about that film compared to what came before it, you can sort of understand that. Yeah. Was any of that picture shot at the Hearst Castle? No. No. No, 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 no. No. Um, they try to keep it quiet. They try, you know. The problem was that Hearst's gossip columnist, Luella Parsons, saw it one month before it was supposed to be released and went ballistic and told him that it was this horrible denunciation of, of him and exposure of his relationship with Marion Davies and on and on. So it postponed the release of the film by more than three months as they tried to decide whether to you know, destroy it or not. But did he ever even see it? That's a good question. Um, thank you from my daughter. <laughs> uh, I don't, I truthfully don't know. There are sources that claim that Wells ran into Hearst once in an elevator years later and Hearst actually complimented him on the movie. But that's an Orson Welles story and I don't, I don't know, I don't know. He definitely did not see it before he hauled out the heavy art artillery and tried to do everything in his power to destroy it. Well, if he had seen it, I don't think he would ever, ever have admitted it. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Marion saw it. She hated it. She had really pissed her off a lot. It's in her autobiography. Yeah, she, she thought it was crap. Yeah. It wasn't, Orson always said it was yeah. never really about her stuff. Yeah. Never about No. It was a composite. I still feel that way. It was a composite. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, I mean, the main source is Hearst, no question. Yeah, but there's a lot of Hearst. Yeah. A lot of Hearst. Right. Anything else? Well, thanks very much. I do, I do have a question. Okay. I was, I was wondering this, but there was rumor about um, how uh, Fred Astaire had done a screenplay and someone had written, I don't know if this happened to RKO, you know, sort of funny looking, can dance a little. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, I did a lot of research in, in archives, and I never found that supposed telegram. Well, maybe it existed and just was never filed away, never put into the archive, but as I recall, it was some talent uh, scout in New York had um, sent to RKO uh, 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 like a telegram after um, doing an audition with a stare that said, uh, can't sing, um, can't act, balding, can dance a little. Uh, if that's not true, somebody was really creative. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.